Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Morning, Christ Fellowship. How are you guys doing today? It's a cold morning, right? Thank you for making it. Thank you for coming to service. Thank you for everyone that's watching online. We're really thankful and grateful that you're, you're part of this morning service. As you know, the word of the year is anchored. And what we want to be is anchored in God. Uh, therefore, we're going through the entire Bible this year. We've already learned from a few of the books. We've learned of Genesis. We've learned about Exodus. Leviticus, and today we're learning about the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers is not one of the most popular books in the Bible. In all sincerity, it's really not. But I tell you, I really think it should be. I think it should be one of the most popular books in the Bible. There's so much going on that we can learn in the book of Numbers, and hopefully we learn some of that this morning. So to tell you a little bit about it, uh, the the book of Numbers has 36 chapters. Most of the book was written by Moses, although some of it was written by other scribes as well. It's an historical book that starts with the Israelites in Mount Sinai, and it ends with them just, uh, just getting ready to cross the Jordan River. It takes place from 1450 B.C. to 1410 B.C., so that's a span of basically 40 years. That's how long uh, this book covers, and it's broken up into five parts. So chapters 1 through 10, um, the Israelites are encamped in Mount Sinai. That's where they are for those chapters. And then still in chapter 10 up to 12, they start traveling. They leave Mount Sinai. Then from uh, 13 through 19, they settle in the desert of Paran. Then again for a couple chapters, 20 through 21, they travel. And for the remainder of the book, chapters 22 through 36, they settle in the plains of Moab. It ends with Israel still in Moab. The Israelites are still there. And by the breakdown, it might look like most of their time was spent in Moab, but actually, almost all the 40 years, most of the 40 years, they spent in the desert of Paran. The book of Numbers starts with actual numbers. That's where it gets its name from. One of the very first things that happens is they take a census. God tells Moses to take, take a census of all of the men that are 20, year, 20 years old or more, and are able to serve in in the army of Israel. Remember, uh, they're getting ready to fight. Uh, They left Egypt as, you know, they left slavery, and now they're a freed people, right? But they're not living anywhere. They settled in Mount Sinai for a year, but that was a temporary thing. God, all along, was really just trying to make do with the promise that he made. He was trying to honor the promise that he gave Abraham. He told Abraham that he would bless his descendants with a land of their own, a promised land. And that's what God wants to do. But to do that, they're going to have to fight. So the census is trying to figure out how many, you know, abled men do we have to be a part of this army. And the total number that they, they counted in the census was 603,550 men that were 20 years old or older and able to fight. So this doesn't include women, this doesn't include children, this doesn't include any uh, men that are older than 20 but won't fight. 
For example, it doesn't include the tribe of, of the Levites. They were the, 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 the priests of the nation, and they were just dedicated to serve in the tabernacle. So those are a whole lot of people that are not being counted. If you really look at the numbers, you can probably guesstimate that it's over 2 million people that, are, that make up Israel. That's a really big number when you consider that when they first went into Egypt 400 years before, there were only 75 people. It was one family, 75 people. Like, if you get together with your family, I bet if you have a big family, you know what it's like. You easily get 75 people. Like, trying to plan birthday parties is really d- difficult in my family because there's so many of us. If it's just like immediate family with like 30 people, it's like, you got to be kidding me. It's crazy. Places are expensive. The basement doesn't fit everybody. What do we do? They had 75 people, and they grew to over 2 million people. That's a really, really big number. After the census, God gives specific instructions on how to organize themselves in the camp. In the center of the camp was the tabernacle. God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle. This was the tent of meeting where where Moses would meet God, and God would speak to Moses directly. There was a cloud that covered the tent of meeting all day, every day, all day. So during the day, it was just a regular cloud, and at night, it was, a, it was basically a fire. It looked like a fire. That must be like an amazing sight if you were there to see that it was just this fire above the tent. The people surrounded the tent of meeting according to their tribes, and that's how their camp was organized. Now, before they begin their travels, God gave them a commands on how to keep their camp pure. Remember, what God was doing was he was developing a nation, He was telling them how he wants them to live, how they were going to conduct themselves. They were becoming a country. He was giving them their laws. And uh, one more thing before they leave uh, Mount Sinai, they had, for the first time since leaving Egypt, they celebrated Passover. Remember, Passover was when the Lamb of the Blood was put on the door frames, and God protected those that were in the houses. So this was a symbol of God's protection. And this is the first time they're about to celebrate this since leaving Egypt, That's significant because they're about to leave this temporary home that they've had for a year, and they're going out into the wilderness. And it's just a reminder of, hey, I protected you once, right? I'll protect you again. And then finally, finally, they leave Mount Sinai. Now, things are going great. There's no problems in this travel, in this trip for about three days. So three days pass, and what happens? All these Israelites turn into little kids in a car car trip with mom and dad. You know exactly what happens in a trip with mom and dad in the car. Kids, if you're here, you know exactly what you do. And if, you know, if you're not a kid, you remember what you did as a kid. Right? If you're a parent, you know what your kids do now. They complained. They complained. That's what they do on a, on a long car trip. My kids sometimes complain on short car trips. And in long trips, forget about it. It's like, I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, oh, that's one of the things, ready? So what are the three things they say? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I want to go back home. Like, that's what they say. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I want to go back home. And literally, literally, that's what the Israelites said in this trip. Only three days in, guys. And they're already saying that. Um, Hold on, sorry. The the difference is, as a kid doing it with your parent, you're a kid. But as an adult, as adults doing this, knowing what God has already saved you from, saving you from slavery in Egypt... It's a very big difference. God didn't take this too well, as you can imagine. He didn't take it well at all. For example, God, these are some of the examples of what they did. God was sending down food for them to eat from heaven every day. 
And look at one of their complaints. Every day, God was sending down food. He was sending down manna. Manna was like a bread that tasted like honey. And you know what their complaint was? Their complaint was, we want meat. Like, we don't want this bread anymore. We want meat. We want something different. They said they missed the food with the the audacity. They missed the food that they had back in Egypt when they were slaves. Listen, these were the people that witnessed God's miracles as he freed them from Egypt. It's the same people. We're talking about just a year ago. Same people saw when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and God parted the waters. And they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. A wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left. And then when they all crossed the sea, God put the water back into place and it swept up all of the Egyptian soldiers that were after them. They saw this. They witnessed this. And yet a year later, they're complaining about food. And it's not like they're starving. They're complaining because they're tired of the food. They're complaining about the menu. They want a new menu. That's what they want. And they were complaining about this. So you can imagine God did not take this well, especially because their complaints weren't just complaints that were being picky. What their complaints were, in reality, at the heart of it, was a lack of faith. That's exactly what it was. And that's why this really hurt God. It really offended him because in reality, it was a lack of faith. The reason he left Mount Sinai and were traveling now was to reach the land that God promised them. They were trying to reach the land of Canaan. When he got near the land of Canaan, God tells Moses, all right, Moses. By the way, Moses, if you don't know yet, Moses was a very important person in his whole process. I mean, you've seen it in the last few books. And God spoke directly to Moses. That's, that's a really, really neat thing, right? I mean, we have that now, obviously, but they didn't have that back then. You know, so God was speaking directly to Moses, and we have that right now. We can speak directly to God. You don't have to speak to God through someone else, as they had to. They needed Moses to speak to God, you know, but we, can, we have that right now. You can speak to God right now. As I'm talking to you, you can ignore me and speak to God. And I advise you, do it. Go ahead. Talk to God. I won't be offended because that's a better uh, conversation. So uh, M- Moses was told to, by God to send 12 scouts. And these 12 scouts were going to check out the land of Canaan. And they were going to kind of, you know, make a report. So after 40 days, they come back with this report. And they say what they saw. And, and what they saw was, you know, they told them, hey, listen, this is definitely a place that's filled with milk and honey. It was, it was a great place, very fruitful. They even brought back some fruit from this place. But what happens? Things turn a little bit. Actually, not a little bit. They turn drastically. Because 10 out of the 12 scouts gave a bad report. They said, listen, the people in Canaan are huge. They're big people. They have large cities. Their cities are very well protected. We can't attack them. We can't attack them. We can't. Only two out of the 12 scouts said the opposite. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, tried to convince all of Israel to attack. They said, listen, God's got us. You know, they're not covered by God. We are. We know that God is going to protect us. Let's do it. That land is ours. We know what's promised to us. But the 10 of the 12 convinced them so much that Israel didn't want to attack. They did not want to attack Canaan. As a matter of fact, they wanted to attack Caleb and Joshua when they said that. They wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua just for suggesting that we should attack. They were willing to attack someone. They were willing to attack the only people that were speaking God's word at that moment. The the men put fear in their hearts, and they said that the inhabitants were too strong. I want to emphasize what's going on in this. There's a very significant thing that's happening. So, as I already said, God was establishing a nation of his chosen people through, from, through whom the rest of the world was going to be blessed. We know, in hindsight, 
that it's through the, you know, the people of Israel that God sends Jesus down and blesses the rest of the world, blesses us. If that doesn't happen, we're not here right now, are we? So we know the importance of it. We know the significance of it. And, um, you know, this is very important. The people dwelling in Canaan were descendants of Ham. That was a son of Noah. If you remember Noah and the ark, right? You know, Noah's ark. That was one of his sons, Ham. So these were people that should have feared God. They knew God. You know, it's, it's in their family history. They knew God, but they didn't fear him. They didn't respect him. They dishonored God. It was a sinful nation. They did horrible things such as child sacrifice. They did that. They worshiped other gods. They were very far away from God. So God was doing two things in this situation. What he, what he was doing was he was bringing judgment to Canaan, and he was also bringing the blessing that he promised Abraham and his people. So when the people of Israel who know this, because this is their history, when, when they say we're not going to attack Canaan, they're telling God, God, we're not going to do what you're telling us to do. We're not going to do what you want to happen, which is bring judgment to Canaan and to bring you know, our nation into the blessing that you promised us, which is going to bless the rest of the world. We're not going to do that. That's what they're saying, the audacity. This is what they're saying to God. It's not a light thing. And they knew it. They knew it wasn't a light thing. So I want to read a little bit of the response um, just to, to paint a picture for we can get it so we can get it. So this is Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It's a little, a little lengthy, but it's important. That night, all the members of the community, by the way, this is going back to the report of the 12 scouts. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Do you hear that? If only we had died in Egypt. Or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Whoa, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to slavery? Wouldn't it, go, wouldn't it be better for us to go back when we weren't under God's protection? Wouldn't we be better off with the Egyptians just, you know, oppressing us? That's what they're saying. Wouldn't it be better if we go back to Egypt? I wonder if we ever say that to God sometimes in our own lives. That's a scary thought. One that we should ask, though, because when you, when you ask those questions, God reveals things to you, and he speaks to your heart, and he shows you where you're off. I wonder when we say, God, we'd be better back in Egypt. We'd be better. I'd be better off when I was doing my, things my way or when I wasn't under your protection because you weren't making me do things that I didn't want to do. I wonder if we say that, and I, I guess we do. I, I guess I do sometimes, too, if we're honest. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Aaron, by the way, was Moses' brother, and he was his right-hand man. He was the high priest. They, uh, They fell down in front of the whole assembly. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh. I didn't didn't look that up. I'm sorry. Jephunneh. Anyone know? Jephunneh. There you go. That sounded better who were among those who had explored the land. No one's named Jephunneh nowadays. Like, I've never run into anyone named Jephunneh. If you know anyone, if you are named Jephunneh, you're watching online, forgive me for saying your name wrong. Uh, Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through, through and explored is exceedingly good. This is Caleb and Joshua talking. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. They knew they were rebelling against God. They knew this was coming from God to do it. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the Lord, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Stoning who? Stoning Joshua and Caleb for saying this. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. So he was ready to kill them all. The Israelites threw in the towel, basically, in this situation. They threw in the towel. They said, we're done. Like, we're not doing this. They didn't want to attack Canaan. They wanted to attack Caleb and Joshua and go about their business. And God was ready to bring a smackdown from heaven. Like, he was ready to dead them all. He was ready to kill them all at that moment. Except Moses stepped in and pleaded with God and interceded for them, and God forgave them. But it came with a price. That forgiveness came with a price, and that's something that we're going to talk about today. That forgiveness came with a price. Why? Because, forgive me, the forgiveness didn't come with a price, but their action came with a price. There was a consequence for it, a big one. There was a big consequence for it. And God said that everyone from that generation was banned from the promised land. They were all banned from the promised land. The 10 scouts that, re- that gave the bad report, that, that convinced Israel to not attack, they were struck down with a plague right there and died. Like God meant business. This was a big deal for God. It's a big deal for the world. By the way, it's a big deal for us. And God struck them down right there. And as promised, that generation did not make it into the promised land. For most of the 40 years, God kept them in the desert, basically just waiting for the older generation to die out. And for the rest of the 40 years, the people actually kept complaining against God. In fact, that's a theme in this book. That's a a pattern that we see in this book. And this is the pattern. One, the people of Israel rebelled against God. Two, God gives them the consequence. Three, they repent. And then four, God forgives. And then it just happens over and over again for 40 years. They rebel. God gives a consequence. They repent. God forgives. There are many great lessons in this book that stand out, and I, I bet if you were to go into it, you'd find so many things that I won't even get a chance to talk about this morning. Um, so I advise, like, if you haven't checked it out already, please go into this book. It's really good. Uh, but there's one that I want to focus on specifically, and it's this, that our faith must be anchored in God's word, not in our circumstances. Our faith must be anchored in God's word. Not in our circumstances. That's really difficult because what we see are our circumstances, but they have to be anchored in God's word. That's, that's where our faith has to be. The people of Israel demonstrate, demonstrated a lack of faith in God. This is remarkable when you consider everything God had been doing for them. He's protecting them, providing for them, guiding them. All this time, they were treated horribly in Egypt. Now they were a freed people, and they still... You know, lacked faith. Uh, things were great until the situation was less than favorable. Favorable, And then they caught amnesia. Like, they'd forget everything God did. They'd forget everything God did, and they were only looking at their circumstance. See, if your faith is based on what God can do for you, then your faith is not based on who God is. If your faith is based on 
what God can do for you. It's not based on God's word. It's based on what's happening in your life at the moment. If your faith is based on benefiting from what God can do in your favor, then your faith is really based on, it's really anchored on God's blessing. You're really chasing God's blessing, not chasing God. It's a big difference. If your anchor is on your circumstance and what God can do for you, what you can benefit from, then you're really focused on God's blessing and not the blesser himself. You're trusting in circumstances instead of trusting God himself. So what ends up happening is when things are good, your faith is up. When things are bad, your faith is down. That's not a secure faith at all. That's not. It's not a secure faith at all. And this wasn't just a misunderstanding that the people of Israel had. This is something that we have to remind remind ourselves every single day. Because every single day, our circumstance changes. Today might be great. Tomorrow might be horrible. Last week might have been the worst week of your life. Next week might be great. But if your faith is fluctuating with your, with your circumstance, your faith is always going to be upside down. Always. Because life is like that. It's inconsistent. Faith can't be based on our circumstance. Just look at the Israelites as an example. Consider the quantity and the quality of miracles they experienced. The quantity, the amount, and the quality, the power of their miracles. Like the miracle of crossing the dry ground should have been a miracle that put the fear of God in them because they should have realized how powerful God is. They should have feared God with all, all, their, all their soul, but they also should have trusted God because God protected them. He saved their life, their lives. He, they should have realized God loves us. He's for us, not against us. That should have happened, but it didn't. It didn't. Look at all the experiences they had, and they still lacked faith in God. See, this, this answers a mis. Uh, misunderstanding that we, we often have. We often think if a great miracle happens, that could be like a shortcut to a great faith. And that's just not true. I mean, again, the Israelites are the example. You know, how many of us have made that prayer? God, if you just do this one thing for me, I'll change. I'll, I'll change. I'll never be the same if you do this one thing for me. You know, and, and, and that's all of us. I think we've all been there at some point in our lives, kind of, kind of saying that to God. If you just do this great thing, God, if I see you, if you do this thing in my life, you know, I'll never be the same. I promise you, I'll be the most, you know, the most committed Christian in the world. I'll be Moses. I'll be just like Moses. That's, that's what I'll be. I'll be just like Moses if you do the things that you did with Moses in my life. We've all been there. But the fact of the matter is, it's not true. See, miracles are great, but you know what miracles really are? Miracles, by the way, miracles are awesome. Like, don't get it twisted. I love miracles. Everyone loves miracles. You know, I've experienced things in my life that I know it was, it was the intervention of God for sure, 100%. But what miracles really are, are a jumpstart to faith. That's what they are. You know, think of what a jumpstart does when you got those cables because you need to jumpstart your car. A jumpstart gives juice to the car battery. It gives juice to the car battery. But the car battery is what keeps the car running. Are you with me? The car battery is what keeps the car running. The cables just give that jump start, hence the name. So faith is the same thing. Faith is a jump start to your faith. I'm sorry, forgive me, I said the wrong thing. Miracles are the same thing. Miracles are just a jump start to your faith. But if your faith isn't established on something stronger, specifically God's word, specifically God's nature, God's character, who God is, then, your faith, then the miracle is not going to last that long. The effects of it won't last that long. It ha- your faith has to be based on something stronger than that. It can be a jump start for sure. 
but it won't, it won't sustain your faith at all. Miracles won't do that. Look at the Israelites, if you don't believe me. And I have a couple more examples, too, that I think paint this picture very well. See, sometimes we're just waiting for something great to happen in our lives in order to be inspired to have great faith, in order to be more committed to God. We're waiting for something crazy for God to show us, I really want you to live this way. I really want you to be committed to me. I really want you to have a great faith. And we're waiting for something crazy to happen, something amazing. When all the while God is saying to us, what are you waiting for? Like, stop waiting for something great. Look at me. I'm great. Just get to know who I am. Let that be your inspiration. Let that be what makes your faith grow. Get to know me. Do you know me? Get to know me. That should be the inspiration for your faith. That should be your anchor. Jesus tells a story that paints this very well in the book of Luke. It's not chronologically um, aligned with what we're reading in Numbers. It's way later. In, in, in the Bible, Jesus tells a story of a rich man and a beggar. It's a, it's a parable. And the beggar's name is Lazarus. So they both die. Eventually, they both die. And Lazarus, the beggar, goes to a place called Abraham's side, which is where the people that loved God in that time would go. It was like a temporary home for them while Jesus was still preparing heaven for us. Right? But back then, that's where they would go. And Lazarus was up there. The rich man was in hell. Why? Not because he was rich, but he didn't love God. So that's why he went to hell. And he could see Lazarus from a distance. He saw that Lazarus was in a good place. So he says to Abraham, who was over there too, he says, you know, can you please send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue? Because it's burning me. The agony of this, of this you know, fire is, is horrible. I can't deal with it. And Abraham responds to him and says... I can't do that. I just can't do that. You're each in a side that you belong in. I can't do it. Besides, even if I could, there's a great chasm that separates us. No one can cross over it. No one can go from one side to the other. And I want to focus on this last part in that short story in Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. So uh, the rich man says, he answered, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. By the way, just look at the man's heart still, right? Like, look at the man's heart. He's still treating Lazarus as if he's lesser than him. He's saying, hey, send him to dip his hand in water. Send him to my family. You know, shows the, the heart of, of who he is and why he's not in heaven. He didn't love God. He didn't love people. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to, to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That's a very, very deep statement for so many reasons. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Abraham tells the rich man, if his brothers don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if they see Lazarus come back to life, speaking to them and warning them about hell. But what does he mean by that? Like, why does he say Moses and prophets should be enough? Why? It doesn't mean that this rich man knew Moses and the prophets uh, personally. He didn't know them personally. He had their words. He had God's word. Remember Moses, as we know, 
as we're we're learning, Moses was the one that God spoke to directly. He gave him the law. He gave him the Ten Commandments. He gave Moses these things. The prophets, the prophets were given so many things as well through both of these. Oh, by the way, with Moses, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the ones that we've read already, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers right now, Deuteronomy next week. They're called the Torah. They're also known as the five books of Moses. So he was referring to the words that God had given Moses. And then the prophets were given so much information about God as well. Through both of these, through the Moses and the prophets, we learn of God's character. We learn of his nature. We learn of his commands, the way he wants us to live. We learn who God is and who we are in God. Through them, God spoke of the Messiah, the promise of Jesus, God's plan of redemption. What Jesus is saying essentially through Abraham in this parable is if a person won't believe God's word, they won't believe miracles because God's word reveals so much of who God is. If they don't believe God's word, they won't believe God's miracles. And this is why a miracle shows you what God can do, which is important. A miracle miracle can show you what God can do, Uh, but God's word shows you why God does it. They're both really cool, right? A miracle can show you what God can do, what he's capable of. But God's word reveals to us why God does it. They're both important for sure. And couple them together, they can be life-changing. They can be life-changing. But knowing why God does it is far more important than knowing what he's capable of. When you learn why God does it, that's so much more important. Because when you learn why God does it, you're learning of God's heart. You can see a miracle and not see God's heart if you're blind to it. But when you learn God's word, you're learning his heart. The parable of the rich man and the beggar foreshadowed two great miracles that were to come. So Jesus says this, you know, to the people. And not too long after, Jesus actually brings a friend of his back to life. Coincidentally, coincidentally named Lazarus. It wasn't the same Lazarus in the parable, but God, uh, Jesus made that parable. I wonder if he did that on purpose, kind of letting you know, hey, I'm hinting something here. So he brings his friend back to life, Lazarus. And many of the people that were witness, witnessing this be, began to believe in Jesus. But can you believe not everybody believed him? There was a small group of people that, what, what did they do? Everyone's staring at Jesus like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And there were a few of them that snuck out and they ran to the Pharisees. Those were the religious leaders. And they went to the religious leaders thinking they were ratting out Jesus. They were like, oh, Pharisees, you know what Jesus just did? His friend uh, Lazarus died four days ago. Then Jesus shows up and he brings him back to life. Can you you believe the nerve of this guy doing something like this? That's what they're thinking. That's how they're reacting to the miracle that they just witnessed. Notice they're not denying the miracle. They're not saying, oh, that didn't really happen. No, they're saying, I saw this happen. Can you believe he did that? Like, what's, what's his deal? Why would he do that? And then the crazy part is, the Pharisees, hearing that they're not denying the miracle, they're, they're confirming that this happened, listen to how they react. They say, oh, we, we got to kill him. We, we, we got to kill him. He brought somebody back to life. We got to kill him. We got to kill Jesus. That was their response. That was a great miracle, but they didn't get it. They didn't get it because they didn't know God. The next time they would ignore resurrection wasn't too long after. It happened again. The guards that were uh, protect or securing the tomb in which Jesus' body was in after he died, the guards 
ran to the religious leaders and he said, listen, this crazy thing that just happened, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. It was like an earthquake. They moved that huge rock that we put in front of the tomb that nobody should have been able to move. They moved it. Then the one angel moved it and we just fainted. Like we were out. And when we woke up, it was gone. Everything was gone. Jesus gone. And you know what the religious leaders say? They didn't say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Now, you're right. You know, this is crazy. We messed up. We need to believe in Jesus. He, we, we thought we killed him. He came back to life. Uh, an angel of heaven came down and saved him. We got to, no, they didn't say any of that. What did they say? Hey, here, take some money. Keep your mouth closed. Lie about this. Don't tell anybody what you just told me. Tell them that during the night, Jesus' disciples stole the body. That's what they told the, the, the guards to do. That's what they told them. Another great miracle. But they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Going back to the book of Numbers, the people of Israel, they didn't get it either. They saw great miracles. They should have gotten it. They had Moses right there. They were getting God's word directly. Not only were they seeing what God can do, they were also learning why God does it because they were getting God's word directly right there. They were the ones that got the Ten Commandments directly. And they still didn't understand. They still didn't get it. They were only focused on what was going on in their life at the moment. See, you can't base your faith on what's going on in your life. You can't because that's always changing. There's nothing solid there. You might as well place your faith on the wind. It'll be the same thing. It's always going to be moving. It's always going to change. It's always moving. And that's what they were doing. So to speak of this a little more concretely, what does this look like in our lives? See, we saw what it was like for the Israelites. They complained. They refused to do what God told them to do. They rebelled. Honestly, it's not much different for us. That's, that's, that's how we react, too, when we lack the faith, when our eyes are on the wrong thing, when our eyes are focused on the circumstance. We do exactly the same thing. But let me speak for myself a little bit. My faith in God gets tested every day. That's expected. There's no secret to that. No shame. <laughs> it's true. Why? Because I know it's true for all of us. Because of the world that we live in. We live in a world that's against God. I feel my faith being tested at work. I feel my faith being tested in my neighborhood. I feel it when I'm driving my car. I feel it right now with the snow because I know somebody's going to try to steal my, my parking spot. I don't know if you guys deal with that. Anyone that lives in my neighborhood, you know what that's like. Your faith is getting tested all the time. I feel it when I'm on my phone, listening to the radio, watching a movie on TV. I feel it when I'm watching a commercial all the time. My faith is getting tested. Talking to people. It's just constantly being challenged in this life. But when circumstances come up that test my sense of worth and my value in God, I remember that I was created in his image. I remember that I'm a child of God. I remember that I was bought at a price. When a situation comes up that makes me question what God's doing, I think of trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. When I think of, when, when, when circumstances come up that make me feel guilty because of my own mistakes, my own sin, my own rebellion towards God, I remember if we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When a situation comes up that makes me feel anxious, I think, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request unto God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. It doesn't mean you're going to understand everything that's going on. The very thing that, that's making you anxious, you might not get it. It's not saying, I'm going to make you understand. No, he's saying, my peace surpasses understanding. Why? Because I understand. You don't need to. 
The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think of cast all your anxiety onto him because he cares for you. When life circumstances try to tempt me to do things that I know displease God. When those things come up and I'm tempted to displease God, I remember, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I remember we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I put it through a filter called Jesus. And, it's, it, and, and I say this, it's not like you have to remember all the scriptures. Those are just personal ones that have impacted me. But it's knowing the word and making, put, and putting it into your heart. It's not even just, you know, isolated scriptures like that. It could even be chapters that stand out to you. Like Psalm 8, that's the one that, that's impacted me. You know, Psalm 8 was dear to me. You know, I think of, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You've set your glory above because, I'm sorry, uh, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained pr- praise because of your enemies to silence the foe in the adventure, in Avengers. When, we th- when I think of your, um, the work of your hands, forgive me, I'm, I don't even know it. <laughs> when I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's the part that gets me. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Who am I that you're mindful of me, God? That you care for me. You made me a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned me with glory and honor. I think of the beginning of Genesis. Again, these are ones that marked me. I think of the beginning of Genesis. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the way he designed everything and organized everything and gave everything a purpose. He made me in his image. He made all of us in his image. And he gave purpose to life. He gave purpose to work. He gave purpose to marriage. He gave purpose to family. He gave purpose to so many things. How can I not look at that and remember, this is my God? And it's not just the chapters. I think of the stories. I think of people like Joseph. If Joseph's faith was uh, based on circumstance, he'd have zero faith. Because Joseph's the guy that his situation always went from bad to worse. Always went from bad to worse. But his faith wasn't on, you know, his circumstance. You know, he was the one that said, well, you meant for evil. God meant for good. And it's not just the stories either. It's the patterns. That's what we're trying to get this year, by the way. It's the patterns that you see in Scripture. You know, the same pattern that we saw in Numbers. People rebel against God. They get consequences. But when they, for, when they repent, God forgives. And you see that pattern in your life too, if you're honest. We rebel against God. We get our consequences. When we, when we ask for forgiveness, God gives it. I see the pattern of how God uses regular people throughout the whole Bible. The only person that was perfect in the Bible, Jesus, that's it. That's the only one. Every other, every other person was flawed. Every other person, as we see in the book of Numbers. And what that tells me is, God, you did great things through them. By your grace, through your power, for your glory, you did great things through them. God, you can use me too? Really? I'm just as flawed as them. In fact, I think the more flawed you are, the more qualified God makes you because then it's more glory for him. That's the pattern that I see in the Bible. And yes... Yes, I also think about the times, you don't leave this out, I think of times, of the times that God made breakthroughs in my own life, my personal life, the times that I didn't expect him to do something and he did something, and I consider miracles in my own life, and I couple that with what I know about God. He teaches me what he can do, but he also teaches why he does it, and the ultimate reason why he does it in my life is because he loves me. 
The ultimate reason why God does what he does in your life is because he loves you. That's the whole point of this, this book, not just numbers, the whole book, the Bible. It's a love letter. You're not the main subject by no means. God is the main subject. His love is the main subject, but you're the target of his love. You're the target of that subject. It's his love targeted at you. That's why we need to know why he does what he does. You're the target of God's love, and no circumstance could ever change that. No matter what you go through, no matter what happens, no matter what the world brings to you, no matter what you bring out of yourself, you're always the target of God's love. That's why you need to place your faith on who God is, his character, why he does what he does, what he wants from us, what pleases him. That's where we place our faith. When we place our faith in God, that means we trust in him, we depend on him, we believe on him, and then we follow his ways. When you don't place your faith on God, meaning you don't depend on him, you don't trust him, you don't believe in him, that means you place your faith on some other way. And by definition, that's sin. See, faith in God is what leads to obedience. Not having faith in God leads to disobedience. Because again, if your faith is in who God is, you're depending, trusting, and believing, you're going to do what he's telling you to do. If you're not placing your faith in him, you're not depending, you're not trusting, you're not believing in him. So that means you're depending, trusting, and believing in something else. And then you don't do what he wants you to do. You do something else. Most of the time, all the time, pretty much, you do it your way. That's the real battle, really. You do it your way. And by definition, that's sin, not doing what God wants you to do. That's why having our faith in the right place is so important. Because when we don't put it in the right place, it always leads to disobedience. Lack of faith leads to disobedience. Faith is what leads to obedience. That's when we do things our way. God's not going to give me that job. I'm going to get it my way. God's not going to get me that date. I'm going to get it my way. I'm just going to stretch out the truth here a little bit, just a little bit. It doesn't matter. I'm going to hide this part of my life. No one sees it. Let me just spend my money this way. It doesn't matter. I'll get more tomorrow or next week. Let me just say these words. Let me just take this shortcut to get what I want, even though I know deep down in the bottom of my heart, this pleases God. Let me just do this thing since no one's watching. No one sees it anyway. So I can just do it. It doesn't matter. You do it my way. See, faith is what produces the obedience. When you place your faith in God's word and his truth and who he is, not in your circumstances. As I wrap it up, I want to highlight a few other things that go on in the book of Numbers during those 40 years. And the first list is a conse- consequences of certain rebellion. Moses' siblings, Aaron and Miriam, insulted Moses. So again, that was the high priest. Now, Miriam was his sister as well. They insulted Moses. God, in consequence of this, gave Miriam leprosy. And for a week, she had this leprosy until she was healed because they repented and they, you know, they asked for forgiveness and they realized they messed up. A second thing, a group of Levites, remember, these were the chosen people to serve the tabernacle. These were the priests. A group of Levites tried to take power from Moses. They died in an earthquake. Another group of them died from a plague. Like God wasn't playing around. Other Israelites were struck down by venomous snakes for going against Moses and God. Some were killed by the snakes while others were seriously injured. 
Miriam died in the desert and never, you know, she never made it to the promised land. Never made it. God even banned Moses himself. This is like the, the final, this is like the biggest twist in the whole book. God banned Moses himself from the promised land. And I'm the one leading you to the promised land, but I'm not going in. Because there was a situation where he tried to take some credit for what God did. God made water pour out of a rock, and he tried to steal some of that credit for pride. For you know, He was angry with the people. Whatever reason, he tried to take some of that credit. And he was banned along with Aaron. They were both banned from going into the promised land. Can you believe that? Aaron dies, and his son Eleazar takes over as high priest. So again, the consequence there is Aaron they didn't make it into the promised land himself. But now this is, this, is the, this is the sweet spot right here. Good part. With all those consequences, because of all that sin, God's still faithful. Amen. Because what was the purpose of all this? The purpose of, hey, I'm going to complete what I started. Point blank. No matter what happens, I'm going to complete what I started. Because God's faithful. The second generation of Israelites defeated some of the neighboring people in battles as they traveled in the desert. God gave them victory. The very thing that first generation didn't want to do, the second generation rose up and they started to do. And God gave them victory. Another thing, a nearby king tried to have an oracle cause a curse over the Israelites. But whenever that, king, that, that oracle would try to speak, God would make, make him give blessings to the Israelites. His en- their enemy was blessing them with words. He even prophesied and spoke about the, of the coming Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. That oracle was, that was trying to curse Israel was speaking about Jesus to come. God was still faithful to them even when they weren't faithful to him. And lastly, last thing I'll mention um, from God's faithfulness, God takes a second census at the end of the book. So again, that's why it's called Numbers, right? Started with a census, it ends with a census. But this census is of the second generation. And he did the same thing. If you're 20 years old or older, you know, all the men that are 20 years old or older and able to fight in this army, now you're ready. Don't do what the others did. Now you're ready. You know, he counted them. And in total, it was 601,730. So really close to that first number, a little bit different, a little bit different. But he was getting them ready for that battle. He was getting ready for that war to get in there. And the book of um, Numbers ends with them getting ready to cross the Jordan River. There's still a little bit to go, but, you know, they were getting ready for it. See, even as people failed God, God remained faithful to his promise. Their sin had consequences for sure. Hard consequences for rebellion against God. But even their rebellion, in their rebellion, God was committed to what he was going out to do, which was honor his promise to Abraham. And this reminds us of an amazing truth of God. And I hope you take this home with you. God is faithful until the end, even if we're not. Even if we're not faithful, God is still faithful to what he's promised. He'll give you your consequences. Don't think, oh, okay, God's not going to. No, we saw it there. Listen, look at the book of Numbers. There's definitely consequences. But whatever God promised to do, he's going to do. So if there's something that he's promised to us in the, by the way, where do you learn God's promises? In the word. You want to know what God promises, get into that word and you'll find out. Whatever he's promised to do, he will do. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need a reminder? Even in our failures, God is faithful to his promises. 
You'll get those consequences, but he'll allow the consequences without ever wavering from what he set out to do. If you find yourselves far from God this morning, repent, and you turn, and God will receive you. You know, the perfect example of this, a perfect symbol of how far God is willing to go to bring you back to him is obviously the cross. You look at the cross. You want a promise? Look at the cross. We, we have a promised land. <laughs> we have a promised land that God has given to us, that he's saying, this is for you. This is my promise. You're going to get there if you love me. You make mistakes, there's consequences. But nothing's going to keep me from completing this promise. Even if we fail, even if we rebel, even if we sin against God, he's faithful to his promise that he may forgive us our sins and one day we'll be in eternity forever in the presence of our Lord and his glory. No giants, no large cities, no walls, nothing could keep us out. So place your faith in God's word because, because that's the only thing that never changes. God's faithful to the end. He's, his promises never fail. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you for what you've revealed to us through your word. Just, just understanding, I pray, God, that you go deep into our hearts, search deep into our hearts, and, and place this, you know, this seed, you know, root it deeply inside of us, that we need to anchor our faith in who you are, in your word, in what you teach us through your word, of your nature, of your character, who we are in you, of what you desire of us, of how we can live this life to please you and to honor you and bring glory to your name. Teach us to place our faith in who you are, in your word, not in our circumstance, not in what's going on in front of us, not in our own feelings, our own thoughts, our own desires. Teach us. That's exactly what this world is telling you. Be guided by what you feel, what you want, what you're going through. No. Teach us, Lord, to place our faith completely, completely in your word and your truth and who you are. We know, God, that even if we fail, you're faithful because you can't break your promises. We might do it all the time, but you can't break your promises. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.